Well, also, thank you for that subtle reminder, Brad, that I need some technology in this office as it gets dark in here <laughs> and I look like the Blair Witch Trials in the background right now. Um, <laughs> so I should be at CES right now. I wasn't going to say anything, but I'm glad you brought it up, Chelsea. <laughs> I'm going to send you a ring light or something. I say, Brian, you got the ring light. You're looking, you're looking very well lit there, I got to say. <laughs> everybody and welcome back. We're kicking off the year with an exclusive episode of The Pod, which we're calling Densu at CES Unscripted. We're still focused on finding ways to inject humanity and insight into modern marketing, but this time with attention on CES, the annual trade show showcasing the latest products and technologies within the consumer electronics industry. Today we have Brian Cooley, Editor-at-Large at CNET, and Brad Alperin, SVP Integrated Strategy Lead at Densu, join us to discuss what we are beginning to see on the CES show floor, virtually of course, and hedging some bets on the future of tech. Welcome Brian and Brad. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks, Chelsea. So let's start with an easy one. Well, maybe not so easy. Let's start with why CES. What does CES still represent or should represent for advertisers? Well, Brad, how many of these have you been to or been involved in, roughly? I've been to, seeing as last year was also virtual, as is my attendance this year. Yeah. I think this will be my seventh. Okay, quite a few. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, I think there's been, you know, there's been a real fraying in the last couple of years because it's become virtual. But I think it's been okay to have a little less of a good thing because it's so unwieldy. Oh, it's enormous. It's it's it across so much space and so much stuff and like you can't possibly see it all. So like the idea of like I have been to CES and I know what there is to know, what it is teaching me, what it has to tell me is kind of impossible. But I think there's sort of this perennial after you've gone for a couple of times, you start to hear like, man, it's the same stuff I saw last year, <laughs> which you start to hear a lot of. Well, because so um, much of it's vaporware. And so you see it one year and then you see the pre-production the next year. And then you see the production version. And then the fourth year, you don't see it at all because it right, never it came out. Yeah. <laughs> I think the reason why CES is interesting to me anyway, from like a marketer's standpoint, is that it is one place where you see a lot of different kinds of people try to figure out what is or is going to be important. And the way they go about solving that question, right, what's going to be important is different. But when you start to see a bunch of different kinds of companies or different kinds of, of products try to address some need, some motivation, some thought that's in the zeitgeist, that to me is interesting, right? Like that's something that you can kind of learn from as a marketer and maybe start to think about applying to your brands, to your products, to your marketing. That's what I like about it. That's what I get out of it. And when I talk to my clients, that's what I'm kind of trying to do is take, it's not about you make electronic products, although some of them do, and here's some things you can learn, or here are more places to put ads, although sometimes, but more this idea of like, oh, a lot of people are trying to figure out how do I meet this need that people have? That's something that a brand can try and tap into. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I see, uh, I go there to see a consensus, if you will, from both technology makers and brands that have maybe been on the cusp of saying, we should attack this consumer need. But sometimes they're looking for the other side to start it or for maybe startups to get together and kick everyone else in the butt and get everyone else larger moving that direction, whether it's blood pressure monitoring technology, whether it's a new kind of entertainment, whether it's something as amorphous as, you know, metaverse that's approaching. And so I've, I think we see consensus come out of CES, regardless of who kicks the ball first, 
the ball tends to get rolling there in many ways. And also, of course, the biggest thing is people are there because people are there. It, it, it remains the biggest meeting that is sort of self-fulfilling as a prophecy of any confab we have all year that marries tech and media. There are other sort of conferences and shows and, and things that people talk about and pay attention to, but none of them have the same kind of gravitational pull that I think CES does because like all this stuff impacts our lives in so many ways, either will impact our lives, right? Like if you think about how many things in past CES, you know, were unveiled, whether it was like the Apple Newton was originally showed at a CES years ago. And that was like a sneak peek at the future, right? Like we didn't know it then we thought it was a failed product. But like it turned out, it was an absolute glimpse about what our lives are going to look like. And we don't even know yet what those things are going to be or which are the ones that are going to disappear like you were talking about. But that's kind of exciting. You might be getting a look at the future. And anyone who's been to CES knows it's kind of a chaotic flea market at some level. I mean, sure, you've got big, beautiful booths and stages and presentations. And then you've got a whole lot of the opposite, a whole lot of crazy, chaotic noise. And, you know, I think the uh, the CTA, the promoters of it, they're very happy with that. They're not trying to make it one of the more elegant, lofty shows of others that we all attend on the circuit, or at least used to. They kind of like the fact that it's kind of a carnival because there is such a potential that something's going to happen and you don't know where it's going to come from, as opposed to a very manicured traditional thought leadership conference where everything is sort of digested and managed and very groomed by corp comms teams. You kind of never know what you're going to stumble across at CES, which I think does keep it kind of electric. To your point, Brian, I think there's so much inspiration no matter where you are in Vegas across CES, that you were going to find an interesting person, an interesting story, just an interesting startup. Yeah. Whatever it is, you're going to find something fascinating that's going to inspire you for the rest of the year. And I feel like we still hold on to that a little bit, even not going for two years. I can say that you don't get that anywhere else. And that's something that that's really nice to carry into the year as marketers and bring that inspiration to the day-to-day that I love so much about CES. It's so nice to hear from the young who have, <laughs> <laughs> who have not been to CES 22 times yeah. like I have. Okay. You are, you are Chelsea, Chelsea, you are refreshing <laughs> my energy around, around CES. Not Which that is it was... why I'm the host and then you are our, our lovely guest. But you got to love that like chance of collision. Like I do think that's one of the things that does make it exciting, right? Is like you said, you're going to bump into something and someone and yeah. some idea and some, and like we're talking about, like one of the things that's hard when it's virtual is you don't even know where to look. Whereas at least if you're walking the floor, like your eyes will fall on something and you'll be like, what is that? And you'll walk up to it. Yeah, it's very hard to feel like you've walked the aisles, like you're pointing out, Brad. It's hard to, no one gets to all of the show. No one could possibly walk every aisle. But I feel like I've checked off sectors and segments. I mentally and physically have, you know, checked things off as I've walked them, gazed, shaken a few hands and moved on. That's much harder to do virtual. I mean, the, the, the physical map, of the world is sometimes much better than the map of the mind. Yeah. That said, a lot has changed in the past two years that we haven't really been physical presence at CES. What are some of the largest shifts in consumer behavior that have impacted how the industry views technology and innovation? We talk about this a lot at CNET. You know, technology comes in waves. Every year is not the same as the year before in terms of uh, intensity and relevance and innovation. It's definitely a cyclical thing. And it's not in nice, even year cycles or anything like that. 
There are hot seasons and there are not so hot seasons. And right now, I think consumers and to somewhat all of us who are around technology, see, it's a little bit of a lull right now. There are so many great things that are already out there and doing great bases of technology, whether it's connectivity, whether it's portable technology, whether it's the liberation of media into streaming, whether it's the way we've learned to work from home and, and shop at home so much more. So many things are working really well. But it's not really a time of convulsive new things that we can see are about to happen. We have plenty of new things out there, but they're still a little bit off in the ether. So we're kind of in this middle where we got a lot of really good established stuff. And the next big thing is still, it's not 12 months away. It's a little further than that. So it's a little bit of a lull. I see that. But I also see, I think part of that lull comes from, I think consumers in the last two years have become more introspective about what they will give their attention to and their money to, right? Like they're putting more thought into, is this a thing I need? Or what are the components of something that I will choose to grant my time, attention, and money to? I feel like consumers are a little more thoughtful. Partly that was sort of forced on them because you couldn't just kind of go out and do things on a whim. You had to, you had to think through, like, do I go buy this thing? I, you didn't like the same thing in the store that we're talking about not having in Las Vegas is, the impulse buy looks different in a virtual world than it does in a store, for example. But I do think that that has caused people to slow down a little bit. I think they're asking questions of brands and companies more, like not just about what does your product do, but like, what do you as a company do? Like, how do you pay your people? And where do you source your products from? And I think there's a lot of those other questions that are starting to go from being like a niche. Like there are always a group of people who cared about those things deeply to becoming a little more mainstream where more people have that closer to the front of their minds when they're thinking about products, technology, brands, and, and whether or not that is something they want in their lives, need in their lives, or will keep in their lives. If it's something, because you're seeing people sort of shed things too, they don't need as much. And so I think that's part of that lull is that big kind of waiting for people to recalibrate those things that they want. And for the the industry to figure out how to better meet those needs. Yeah, and I think some of that will tie into uh, the next wave on many fronts is going to be uh, what I think of as getting to the true era of personalization. We've been doing as good as we can with the technologies we have, but there are so many more that are about to break out, including connecting our homes, connecting our wearables, connecting our cars, and also whatever definition of metaverse you tie into, no matter which one it is, it leads also to greater expression of self and true individual personalization, as opposed to hyper-fine targeting, which is, I think, yeah. where we're really coming from. And so that's going to be an enormous wave of really interesting innovation that's just about to happen. And I think that ties back to what you're talking about, Brad, which is that's the kickstart that's going to be the spark for the next big, big long run of, of interesting combustion, if you will. And I think there's a, there's an alchemy. And like you said, like you're starting to see some companies really kind of play in this sort of personalization space to a new degree, right? Technology has unlocked the ability to do that at scale to kind of create, not just like, oh, you can have the blue or the black, right? But actually suddenly it's getting a lot more um, nuanced in how personalization can happen because the technology is unlocking that. But I think like that alchemy is not just, can I make a thing that you pick from among a lot of options, but create that feeling of this one is for you. And that we are not mass producing things and you're grabbing it out of a bucket, but mm. we as a company, we as technology are trying to create something for you. And there's an alchemy to that that is partly the technology and the product itself and partly the sort of story and feelings that are created around it 
and that also kind of tap into a new set of expectations about what people want from brands and from companies and from products. And there's a real alchemy, a soup that's all kind of coming together. And I, I agree with you that that next wave is going to be very much kind of in that soup and how all of those elements come together, how the technology enables things, but then how brands and people kind of create meaning around it in a way that makes things feel unique in a way that um, they haven't really for a while, not in, not in the world of like mass, you know, sort of consumer tech and products and things like that. So I'll ask more of a personal question for you both. Is there an upcoming consumer launch that you're excited about the most this year? What's on your hot list, Brad? I got to think about that one for a minute. It's not the electric snowmobile that I saw this morning. <laughs> no. I mean, no, look, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I, there's a couple things that I find really interesting. I think the whole sort of electrification of transportation is interesting. I think it's still more talk than action, although it's getting closer to action. But one of the things I think is really interesting is where that possibility, the adjacent possible of lots of high-powered electric vehicles running around, what else does that open up? So like you're seeing a bunch of things like bi-directional charging systems, which means that like, oh, so I have my electric vehicle, I plug it in the house, but then if the power goes out, I can run power from my car to power the house, right? It's not just the power going one direction, but it goes both directions. What happens when you have a world full of like high-powered batteries on wheels that can go anywhere? Like that opens up new possibilities. So like that's not happening next year, right? But like to me, that's what fires my imagination is how these sort of new possibilities open sort of the adjacent things next to them that we haven't even quite figured out what that means yet. But when you look back on it 10 years from now, you're like, oh, that's the moment that whole change started to happen. I always keep a little list either in my mind or sometimes literally just jotted down in a dock somewhere of shoes that are about to drop. You know, they're, mm -hmm. they're imminent, but I don't know exactly when. No one's quite able to figure out when we'll, like you say, Brad, look back and say, oh yeah, that was when the ball really started to roll. Uh, I've got about a handful of them on my list right now, which is, I think this is going to be the first year that we'll look back and say, ah, that was the year of 5G. When 5G mm -hmm. didn't launch, but when 5G really set its roots. I think that'll be 22 for a, a bunch of technical reasons, to be honest, and spread of networks. I think we're going to, as you mentioned, electrification of cars. I believe 22 is a year we'll look back at and say that was the beginning. As opposed to the Big Bang, that was when things really took root uh, as well. I'm not so sure this is going to be seen as the year that Metaverse kicked off as yeah. much as we think we are in it right now. It's still down the road a little ways, you know, regardless of whatever uh, Meta has done to get us talking about it. We're not quite at the point where it, those roots are going to take. And then I'm also very intrigued by the fact this is going to be a big year of seeing both plant-based protein. And I think we'll start to see some real presence of these cultured or cultivated proteins, uh, meat grown from meat, if you will. And those have the potential to be, even though they're not the typical electronic tech, they are tech. And oh, a yeah. very important one that can affect so many parts of society and living creatures that they make a statement about my health. They give me options of what I can do for the environment. And they also give me options of what we can do with our relationship with animals. It hits to a lot of bases and they're both going to occupy the consumer's mind. And then the horse race is on to see which, which dominates. I think one of the big sort of consumer shifts is happening is a sort of a sense that as people sort of have this more introspective view of the world around them, they want to feel like their choices are part of the solution instead of part of the problem. And whether that's like, you know, looking at sort of global warming and looking at overcrowding and looking at inequality, like there's a lot, depends on what your hit list is, but like how do my consumption choices, how do the choices of the things I choose to buy and consume 
make me feel like I'm part of the solution instead of part of the problem. So everything you just mentioned, like that's one of the key selling points. I mean, aside from can it taste good, can it be healthy, but like, oh, you're part of trying to make the world a better place. You're trying to kind of cut down on things that are causing harm in the world. And I think there are lots of places where you see that, like you look at sort of a whole new level of products that are touting their ability to be more eco-friendly. One of my favorites is the Samsung remote control. So Samsung is going to start packaging remote control. They have for a number of years that has a solar cell in the back. So if you just sort of leave it in a lit room, it'll recharge itself. But now they're like harvesting RF waves. So you've got all these sort of like energy waves in your home and it can kind of take and take a little trickle of energy out of those to recharge that battery. So you never have to change the battery. That's cool. Right. And that's a, like, it's a remote control. I was going to use remote control anyway, but now I feel like every time I pick that thing up, right. I, I feel am like. part of the solution. Yeah. That's the key though. I mean, that to me, and I think, I think it's a fascinating, that's one of my favorite products at CES. It's not going to change the world. I can't remember the last time that I had to change the battery in my TV remote. The things seem to last forever, but yeah. the fact that it is symbolically important is a big deal. It allows consumers to say, yes, I want to attach to that. And that tells us that they're open to many more, more consequential choices that range anywhere from wetware, food, all the way to hardware, of course, mm -hmm. uh, devices. Samsung also announced that they, I think by 2025, all of their TVs and their phone chargers, if I got this right, will have no phantom power draw when they're plugged in and not actually running or actually charging. Multiply that times all those many hundreds of millions of devices that have that brand name on them. And suddenly you're saying, okay, wait a minute, that actually is going to make a global difference. No, and that's where a company like Samsung scale can, right? Like, you, right. I think you also start to feel like as an individual, how much can I, my individual choices make an impact on big things? But a company like Samsung doing something like that can, right? Little tiny changes are multiplied by millions and millions of opportunities to make yeah. a little bit of a difference. And I think this was the, uh, by far, the year that I've heard the most from major brands going not just to talk about sustainability, but talking about it at great length. So talking about sustainability at CES is not new, but at the length and depth and breadth that I've heard it this year, I've been very surprised how much time has been devoted at major press conferences and keynotes. And not just at the beginning or the end, but woven all the way through the presentation. That takes a certain amount of commitment and courage from brands who realize that every time you cut to the sustainability argument, you could be cutting away from the retail features and marketing argument, but they feel it's important enough to to put it in there. Well, and like you said, with specificity, right? It's not just, we're going to eventually cut our carbon footprint because we think it's a good idea, but like, here are some product choices we're making to make things easier to repair, yeah. to make things more recyclable, to use different kinds of products in the creation of what it is that I'm doing. And so they're being much more specific. And again, I think that feeling is important though. Like we kind of laughed it off a little, like you feel like you're doing something. But I do think for, this is a key lesson for brands that come out of CES this year, I think, is that creating that feeling is powerful and, and, and can be genuinely differentiating in a way that sometimes your product itself, the functionality of your product itself or your service might not be radically different than what your competition is offering, but you can create a unique set of feelings around it that make me decide to buy yours instead of someone else's, or maybe even pay a premium for it. And I think that's, that's some powerful stuff. You sort of answered it, but let's see if there's anything else. What is going to surprise us the most this CES? As we look back at it and, and digest it, I think 
one of the most surprising aspects will be this focus on sustainability that we were just talking about. I didn't expect that level, degree, and specificity, as Brad's talking about, to pop up across so many brands' messages. So that was interesting. I also think that one of the things that'll be a little surprising out of this is that we are seeing a time when large brands have to realize that they need to be as innovative and receptive to consumers as opposed to dictating as much as they have had the luxury of doing. So for example, we come to CES and and we wanna sit there and say, what does giant wise brand have for us to tell us how we should live tomorrow? That is a very classic position of consumers and the media, to be honest, when they look at CES. I think increasingly we're seeing brands open up a dialogue, and that's an old, tired phrase, of course, but I think it's actually starting to really happen where it's listening, it's engaging, and that will and must result in true point-to-point hyper-personalization in the future. And if it doesn't, that means that they weren't really listening at all. They were just saying they were. I'm, I'm a little surprised by some of those big companies starting to tout how they are bundling in third-party services into their product in a way that I feel like they didn't use to, that used to be more the footnote or the asterisks if they did it, because they're like, we are LG and we make wonderful things. But like LG announced a partnership with a company called was Independa, which offers telemedicine, right? So they're offering, building into some of their televisions, right? So your OLED TV, which can have a little camera on top and you're gonna be able to pay a flat fee that gives you access to dental and medical care through your television. And that was like front and center as opposed to like a little asterisk. And I think some of the big companies are going, huh. And I think it has to do with that listening to some degree that Brian was talking about, which is, you know, how do we become more useful to you? How do we we tie ourselves more deeply into your lives? And if we can't offer the whole package, we better make sure we're providing it for you. And if we've got a partner to do that, they're doing it. And that I found a little surprising how kind of front and center that was this year, or is so far. I think you're right. I mean, for a couple of three years ago, if you'd seen an announcement like that, the announcement would have been, hey, we have a new TV with a health service. And by the way, it's called LG Health. And we've built it from the ground up. And now I think increasingly, and it doesn't matter, it's many companies who are realizing they have to bring in the best and also the brands that have permission to do that service and not assume that they, the big brand, have permission to do everything. This is something that was learned years ago, but not quickly enough by telecom companies that thought they should be in the entertainment and media business. And for the most part, that never worked out. Took them a long time to get that message. Not every brand can be in every vertical. Samsung televisions, they rolled out a gaming hub of cloud gaming services, and I was ready for it to be, you know, this partner, this partner, this partner, which they had, and it's all, you know, centered on our new gaming service that we're announcing, and it's called X. But that didn't happen. It was strictly partners, like you're pointing out with this health service. So I think there's a, it's a humility and a wisdom to say that you bring in services that people, that consumers expect and see as specialists, as opposed to an era of generalism that every big electronic brand has the permission to do everything. It's just, it just doesn't make sense anymore. Well, I think there's also, there's like a pothole there, which is if you try and hold too tightly, you lose the exact thing you were seeking, right? right. Like what I wanted was people's loyalty and attention and share wallet. But if I, if I hold too tightly to that, I'll, I'll lose it because I don't, like you said, I don't have the permission. I don't have the expertise. Again, it feels one-sided. It feels like then you're more in it for you than you're in it for me. And if I feel like this is more about enriching yourself than helping me stay healthy, 
I'm, I'm not so sure I want to sign on. This is a really good way to kind of like help earn some trust and earn some credibility. And I think that, that gets them closer to what they were really looking for in the first place, which is my attention and hopefully my loyalty. Let's dive into hedging some bets for 2022. Up or down arrow, and then quick thoughts on these following topics. So we sort of address telehealth, but any other consumer health, we think that's going to skyrocket this year. Any quick thoughts on that? Yeah, without, without a doubt, I'd say, yeah, okay. I, give that, I give that a strong up arrow. That trend is, that arrow points one way, for sure. What about trust and transparency? Trust and transparency, I think, is going to be important, but in a way that is, it's about a differentiation. It's a brand value, I would argue, even more than a technical value. So like, how do you help people feel? Again, like, are you in it for you more than you're in it for me? And trust and transparency becomes one way, again, you differentiate your product offering by showing what's behind it and how I'm in this for you. Yeah, I, transparency is the key part of that. It's, uh, that's the biggest part of trust, I think. It's not that you are doing this or that with my data and our relationship. It's that you're making it clear what you want to do with it. And then I have the, the, the power to make that decision because people, consumers come in such a wide array that some will do this and, and agree to this value exchange. Others will find that outrageous. So transparency is at the core of it. And I think that that's also a durable, permanent value going forward. Consumer and brand safety. We're in a wild, woolly era that I don't think ever goes back the other way, where if we're talking about brand safety in terms of being adjacent to content, that you can predict what direction it's going, that's hard and it's only going to stay harder, get harder, I think. Uh, this is a radically empowered world of publishers. We also call them customers, and they're <laughs> all the same thing. And so uh, brand safety becomes something, I think, almost where you need to be more elastic than to be more walled off into a place that you can predict you're going to be comfortable. That's, I mean, I think the audience listening to this knows more about this subject than I certainly do, but that's kind of a view that I've got from my side. Well, I also think the thing about brand safety is that definition is gotten a little plastic because I think for a long time, you know, it's about not offending anyone, but you kind of can't do that anymore because even not speaking, not taking a side, consumers notice and you can potentially pay a cost. And so you got to stand somewhere and kind of figure out where you're going to stand and then just do it. And so brand safety is, yes, it's about not necessarily enabling and throwing your money towards things that are anathema to your brand, but also understanding what your brand does stand for positively and figuring out how to stand proudly in that space and understand that that's not everybody's going to love it, but maybe your people will. And that's what you're doing. AI. <laughs> AI. I was waiting for it, Brian. I was yeah. waiting for it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brad just used the word plastic and elastic, and uh, AI is that. AI means anything to anyone, depending on how they want to use it, view it, define it. But that is not to take anything away from it. It's like it's like saying software. I mean, yeah. the, the era of software, which started, you know, depending on when you want to date it, 40, 50, 60 years ago, it really has shown that this is a sock that is so elastic, it fits over anything you want it to. So I hate to even give an answer on something that broad because AI is simply the future of data and data appreciation is to apply such techniques to it. So yeah, it's a given. It's like saying air, water, well, how is yeah. that going? Not going anywhere. Well, I was gonna say it's, it's increasingly invisible, right? In that way of like, you don't buy an AI, you don't like, it's, yeah. it's, it's baked into everything. So it's practically invisible. Like you said, it's like the air of the water. But the other key thing about AI is it is not value-free and judgment-free, ethic-free. Where the AI comes from 
and we, we have this sort of thought that like they're algorithms and so they are unbiased. And I actually think this is one of the kind of new forefronts that people need to pay attention to is who's setting up that AI in the first place? What data sets is it being trained on? And so just because a computer or an algorithm is coming to a set of potentially really smart and powerful conclusions does not mean that they are free from judgment or bias. And we need to kind of keep an eye on that. And it's harder because it's invisible. And to me, that's a thing that brands, companies, technology, a set of questions they didn't even ask themselves before because the question was AI, how do we do it? But now that it's kind of showing up everywhere, there's now a question of have we done it right? And are we done going back to make sure that we have done it right? And I would argue the answer should be no on that question forever. AI can be very off-putting to people that are not in technical roles and say, wow, I need to learn a lot. This is going to be a huge lift for me to figure this out. AI is something that you can leave to some degree in a black box if it's not the kind of role, if it's not the kind of technology that your role demands you to understand. And most importantly is to understand what are some of the attributes that you realize it can power or unlock that have been difficult or impossible in the past. For example, it's very good at helping us find out what questions to ask not just what answers we're looking for. That's all you have to know about AI in many ways. And so when you work with an internal team or a vendor, say, hey, I need to have some kind of a tool that's gonna help me develop questions, not just find answers. That doesn't require you understand machine learning. That doesn't require that you understand neural networks. You don't need to get into the black box. You just need to know that this is a black box that's able to derive and, and give us certain services that we couldn't before. And that may be as far as you need to go unless you're in a technical role. So don't be too put off by AI and the fact that it looks very dense and technically weedy. I think that's all right. I do think though it's important and it sounds like it's coming from both of you is that there's a sense of human responsibility no matter what oh, you know, sure. all the topics we're landing, yeah. whether that's consumer, marketer, brand, even the technology companies themselves. So I think that's important throughout this, right? Every tool we have has the ability to be improperly used or to have bias built in that we never knew was there, especially if we didn't design the tool. And so that watchfulness can never end. Well, the more seamless it's sort of woven into our lives and our products and, and society, like the, the easier it is to forget to ask, you know, what's behind it, what's flooring it, right? And so that's why I think that idea that bakes into the sort of the trust and, and transparency and some of those other things we were talking about. But that's why that becomes so important to kind of bring to the forefront because it's so easy to just let it happen because it's really good at it and you're not often looking at it. All right, next one. I feel like this is CES sweetheart, drones. <laughs> drones are like 3D printers. They will affect many people, but they won't be used by many people. I don't see drones in every in every home, in every garage. Sure, they're great for toys on one end and for professional applications on the other, but the same, you know, they would, we all thought there were gonna be a 3D printer in every household. That was never going to happen. We're not a nation of makers. We're a nation of consumers for the most part. So I think I, I see drones, which are primarily video tools for the most part. There's also drone sport, uh, but for the most part, it's a video tool. And I don't think most people are going to have or need one. But almost all of us are already benefiting from both the entertainment that they generate, the uh, the visual content and media that's fantastic at a better cost and easier production cycle, or some of the services, the industrial services that they enable. But again, most of us don't need to have one to get the benefits of them. I think they're the poster child, at least they were a bunch of years ago, for like the next earth-changing, earth-shattering technology that turns out to be genuinely useful, but more niche 
than perhaps mm-hmm. everybody thought, right? And like I said, drone 3D printers, which are amazing technologies and for their purposes, incredibly good and change the game in certain parts of, in certain categories and certain parts of society. But for Shining Waters, like this is going to be what everybody is going to have and going to do. And I think drones a couple of years ago were, were the poster child, as with 3D printing once upon a time. And it's possible that things like VR and AR, which have been buzzing around in the whole metaverse, might end up, and we'll probably end up talking about this in a minute, might end up being really powerful for certain use cases, more than the thing that everybody's going to be doing right now or next year. All right, let's dive into what I think everyone is waiting for us to talk about, metaverse. Uh-huh. The, the key is to take the article off of it. It's not the metaverse, not in my opinion. It's metaverses or metaverse technology. It's not a single place like the internet, which is a single underlying platform, but it will be a variety of, I think, something along the lines and number of social media platforms, a handful, not hundreds of major ones and not one, but a handful of ones because that's going to be where we have our limit of our attention of how many we want to subscribe to, take part in, develop a presence in. That would be my hunch right now, although I'm very, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very bullish on metaverse. This is not one that I think is going to be a flash in the pan that we're embarrassed we were talking about three years from now. The vision, the sort of like utopian vision of the metaverse is it will become like the internet. There will be one persistent virtual space that we can all go to and do amazing things in. I don't think that's where we're headed. That would require a level of cooperation that has not yet proven to be common in business to that degree. But I do think the idea that there is a whole new way to bring people experiences and to go back to that, like, what do things feel like becomes really important. And if, if what people increasingly, a lot of people increasingly value our experiences over things, which is something we've been talking about for years, what's interesting about the idea of the metaverse is how do I lower the bar for creating or bringing experiences to you, right? Like, we, not all of us can, can pay Jeff Bezos to, like, take me into space. And I'm sure it's an amazing experience, but uh, I, I'm probably never going to afford it. But like, are there other kinds of experiences that I might not have access to? So when you look at some of the technology in CES this year, like platforms that are trying to create virtual concert venues and use the tools to, to enable that. That feels like a use case that might, a lot of people certainly in the last two years would be like, oh, how do I have access to certain kinds of experiences that either due to geography, due to accessibility, that suddenly you're opening up to people. I think that's really interesting. And that's one of the sort of reasons why people, why their imaginations are partly fired by this idea. But it's, we're a little ways off. Like This is that one this year that everybody's buzzing about, like drones once upon a time or 3D printing. This is the one that everybody next year, it's going to change everything. And it might change everything. I don't think we're there for a little while, though. I think we got a ways to go for both the technology to catch up, for the demand to catch up, and for the real killer applications to get built, which I haven't seen the kind of thing that just everybody needs yet. Yeah, and Chelsea, I would also say, because I know you're looking for you know, a directional call on this, I would say I have as much of a directional good feeling over time about the immersive or VR-based metaverse as I do about an augmented reality-based metaverse or a flat-screen metaverse on today's laptops, tablets, and phones. Metaverse is not tied to VR. Metaverse is about interfacing things that previously were too distant too virtual, physical, incompatible, or too safe, dangerous, incompatible, and trying to pull those things together so that they can interface with each other. That doesn't require some 
immersive VR platform. So I want to make sure I disabuse our audience of thinking that narrowly. I think it's important. I like that. All right. Last one. Return to office and future of work tech. Do we think that has a presence at CES this year? It does. It's woven. Yeah, it's woven. This is this has been a big year, 2021, for the uh, the revenge of the desktop. For example, it's it's not a story that has any single technology that makes us go wow. But the desktop came back. I believe desktop sales were up seven percent as we closed out 2021. If I have the number right, that's a big spike in one year for a category that is super stable and gradually eroding in most cases. So the fact that we are only, only roughly two years into this pandemic and its new behaviors right now, we have a lot of behaviors yet to change en masse. I think a lot of consumers have yet to make their final decision on how they're going to reconfigure their home for long-term partial work, partial entertainment, partial education, I should say, in the home. And I think that's going to push a lot of purchases still of televisions and other equipment, desktop computers, many things that uh, we thought we had a handle on. We've already seen it, in fact, in 21. And I also think that there is this mythology still that we have to sort out with employers that something magic happens every minute when we're in the office and something stultifying happens whenever we're on Zoom or Teams or what have you. I just think we have not spent nearly enough time yet really probing and developing what the remote or anywhere work experience can be like. And we're already trying to stuff it back in the box saying, boy, just as soon as we can get back to the office, the magic is back. I think that's oversimplifying. The office was never that magic. There's some romance there. And technology can have a lot more magic if we just keep developing these platforms. Well, I think that's one of the things that's interesting about CES this year is what's the cycle it takes to actually sort of develop and bring a product to market, right? It's what, about 18 months, give or take. So we're actually at the first CES where people who kind of going into the pandemic were looking at the world and going, huh, what's missing? What are we going to need in this new world? And products are starting to show up. And one of the things I find fascinating is, again, like old technology that people are sort of rethinking. So like, Something I never thought I would pay attention to again at CES are web cameras, right? And so suddenly, like, not only are people building new capabilities into web cameras, sort of, you know, like into like a Dell computer, but I saw, you know, new standalone web cameras that have built-in lighting, right? In a way that, like, we weren't thinking about that. Like, do I have a ring light on my thing? And like, you know, that wasn't something we were thinking about two years ago because the webcam was a thing we used infrequently right? Like it was, it was, it was a nice to have, but suddenly it became like I used to have. And suddenly a lot of us were paying attention to what's the lighting look like, you know, when I'm, when I'm on that conference call and you're seeing technology that's kind of adding that in because suddenly that became more important. And so there's technology that's doing it. So I don't know about what the like future of hybrid work, exactly where that equilibrium is going to land. But I do think it's interesting that you're seeing a whole range of products that seem to have rethought the nature of certain kinds of technology because we suddenly found a whole new set of uses and needs from that technology because of this sort of hybrid reality we've been living in. And I would argue probably are going to continue to live in to a lot more degree than we would have thought two years ago where that settles out. I don't know. Yeah. I think what employers think is the right amount of time back in the office and what employees think is in most cases quite different. And that needs to be reckoned with. And I think largely to the degree of what Brad's talking about, a lot of things that look fairly prosaic can make a big difference. Improvements in technology that allow us to have eye contact online. In other words, cameras like Dell show that you can put in the middle of your screen. That sounds trivial. But suddenly, if you have eye contact in a Zoom or a Teams or a WebEx, 
things change. And if we can have technology in the connectivity space that lowers the latency so that as we talk back and forth, we're not having these weird disconnected delayed step-ons with each other that just blow the whole conversation up. And are there easier ways for us to do drop-ins where I can just click quickly and basically ring your video doorbell. Teams does this pretty well. And just do a quick drive-by at your desk, the way I used to walk by your office desk. And you can just hit the button and say, yeah, let's, let's do a quick video chat. Uh, Zoom doesn't do that well, not, not that I've found. So as we start to pull the best features of all of them, we can recapture a whole lot of that spontaneity, easy interaction, take out some of the ceremony, where right now I have to like, you know, put an invite in a calendar to do something remotely. I can't just look at you and say, hey, Brad, what do you think of this? That's what we have to recapture. I think yeah. we can do it with technology. We just haven't tried hard enough. What should marketers be doing today and this year when we think about technology and innovation and media? Focus on anticipation. And I've been talking about this for a few years. Anticipation is another way of saying true personalization, but focus on anticipation of needs. That's an absolute mega trend even bigger and somewhat more amorphous than things like metaverse technology uh, and these other, and AI, those are big. But anticipation is the point of so much of that. And I think that's the thing to keep laser focused on is how can you better anticipate and don't take your eye off that. That's not a seasonal, that's not a seasonal goal. That's something that consumers will always delight you for. They've, they've delighted brands for doing that since the dawn of brands. Yeah, I mean, that's always my first thing when it comes to marketers and brands is really understand what are the underlying driving motivations that people have. And if you can really figure that out, then the, some of that anticipation comes. And I, I think technology, like we we're talking about with AI, can help with that in some cases. But like, it's less about the technology, in my mind. It's less about the technology. It's less about the things and what they can do and more about understanding the motivations that they fulfill. And if you have your finger correctly on the motivations, on the needs, on what people, what drives them, what they're really looking for, and not even necessarily what they're asking for, because what they're asking for isn't always what they're really looking for. But if you can figure that out, that's what puts you ahead. And to bring it all the way back around to where we started with CS, like that's what I find interesting about CS. It's a little bit of a glimpse at crowdsourcing what a lot of people think is motivating people, what a lot of people think will be important. And if you can figure that out, you can get ahead of your competition and you can win. And I think you both said this earlier on too, but asking the right questions, asking the right questions to the right partners and people, bringing a sense of vulnerability is more important now than ever before. So not being afraid to ask those questions when you don't know, I think is pretty important through this process as we continue to figure it out. So I like to call this now the rolling thunder round versus lightning round because it never seems to be as fast as we always want it. So I'm sorry, Jason. <laughs> I promise we'll do, we'll, we'll do fast. <laughs> we'll try to go fast. Let's so, do lightning, Brad. Here we go. All right. Three lightning. Weirdest tech gadget you've seen so far. Color changing BMW. The Deerbuds dehumidifying earbuds from Samsung. <laughs> <laughs> okay, those win. Most interesting fact you have learned so far. 720 million people worldwide have untreated hypertension. And I think part of that's because it's not being sensed. I would say that there are chefs willing to work with an AI robot to teach them their best recipes. Oh, you guys really brought your A game to the lightning ground. This is the first time this has ever happened. Least favorite word used in the technology space. The metaverse. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I was, I was going to go with metaverse. I just feel like everybody's got their own definition, and it's like, cool new thing, metaverse, and they just sort of throw it in. It's okay until you put the the in front of it. That's where it drives me nuts. I just don't think it's one. I think we found our podcast name. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> one thing you miss about being at CES in person? Being a bumblebee. I uh, cherish the fact that I'm lucky enough to cross-pollinate between brands and agencies through the meetings I have in person there. And it doesn't work the same way in virtual. I can't share ideas from different sectors and different teams the way I'm able to when I'm actually at the show. I'd miss that. The unexpected conversations, right? The unplanned for conversations that you have, you walk up to a booth and there's someone who created something, put their heart and soul into it. You're like, tell me about this thing. And they're excited to tell you about it. And you learn more than you ever would just reading the brochure, seeing it because you learn why and what drove them to it and where the light bulb went off in their brains in the first place. And those conversations I find so inspiring and that's what I miss. Well, here's to the hope of 2023. Thank you both so much for joining the special edition of the podcast. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, Chelsea. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to an exclusive episode of Dentsu at CES Unscripted on the human element. You can find us anywhere. You can find your pods. Give us a like, subscribe, or send us a note. We will be back out to you real soon for another exclusive unscripted episode to wrap up CES 2022. And in the meantime, be well.